you are listening to the Sermon Podcast at Bethel. We're an evangelical covenant church located in western Wisconsin outside of Ellsworth, and you can find out more about us on our website, BethelCov.org. My name is Todd Speaker. I'm the pastor here, and thank you for listening. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to everyone's favorite book of the Bible, Lamentations. And so if you've got, this is one of those days where the Bible app on your phone is your best friend because then you don't have to go hunting for it, but it's right between uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's towards the end of the Old Testament, and we're going to be looking at Lamentations 2. Uh, but just a quick question. This is um, classic, getting put on the spot. But those of you that are, are watching online, those of you that are here in the room, did any of you guys try and read through all of Lamentations 1 or Lamentations 2 this week? Oof. Yeah, Sherry. Sherry, she doesn't want to be like, and yeah, I got joined back there. <laughs> Perfect. Well, now, as you read it, what, uh, it was, it's... Unlike anything um, in, in most of Scripture, there are other psalms of, psalms of lament in, in the book of Psalms, times that uh, the, the author is praying a prayer of just pain and anguish, but there is nothing in all of the Old Testament that is quite like uh, the book of Lamentations because it's a response to a disaster, a tragedy that... Um, that God's people that wrote the Old Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit and, and people today still uh, almost use as an example of what the worst case scenario tragedy looks like. In, in Lamentations, you did everything that you thought you were supposed to do, um, but, but others and, and yourself and, and everything, it just didn't work out. Um, and so as I was preparing for this, uh, as we're going through the uh, second, our Lamentations 2, uh, this week on, on Monday, I was wrestling with, with Foster, my son, uh, and, and he is, um, he's a great kid, and he's growing bigger, um, and this is a problem, because when he was a little baby, I used to think it was really funny to, like, wrestle with him, and, like, he could jump on me and sit on my head and, like, whatever, and it was fine, but he was also, like, 20 pounds. Now, he's, like, a million pounds, and he can really hurt me, <laughs> Um, and, and he is, it's just like over the last year, he started to hurt me more and more, and I'm less and less inclined to wrestle, but I, you might find this not difficult to believe. At his age, he's more and more inclined to wrestle, and so we were playing, uh, we were wrestling, he was sitting on the couch, and I had this really great move. I grabbed him by his legs, and I yanked him off the couch, which I thought was really cool. Um, but what happened was, as I pulled him off the couch, uh, his head fell off the couch and hit me right in the nose, just like square in the nose, and... And I'm not someone, um, I haven't been uh, punched in the nose in a long time. <laughs> uh, but let me tell you, it, um, I tasted blood. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, ow! And, and there are two, two feelings, is pain, and then there's this like uh, ambiguous anger that's like something bad happened to me, and it must be somebody else's fault, but of course it wasn't. And so I get up, and I walk away to kind of take care of my nose. I say, Foster, we'll, we'll play later. I can't talk to you right now. I'm going into the bathroom. And I can hear Foster's voice echoing from the living room. Um, and, and he's getting close to the age where I'm not, I shouldn't tell stories about him anymore. But he says, <clears throat> I can hear his voice, his small, innocent, sweet, perfect voice. That was your fault, Dad. 
<laughs> no, oh, sorry, how you doing? No, it was your fault, Dad. And it was one of those moments when you hear your own words echoed back to you out of the mouth of your children. And, and his first reaction to my pain was to make sure that it was very clear whose fault that was. And as I came back into the room, Erin uh, was there the whole time, and she looked at me, um, because we've talked about this before. We've talked about how I have a, a deep-seated instinct inside of myself uh, to find the responsible party in any given situation. Uh, and of course, um, when it comes to parenting, uh, our way of life and our way of being in the world, uh, it's caught by our children more than our values are taught. And so Foster has learned from me that when someone gets hurt, it's really important to assign blame right away. And, and in my defense, and before, I'm sure I'll hear about it when I, when I get home from Erin, she's our online greeter today, um, bef- before you come at me too much, I think we can all admit <laughs> that I am not the only one in our world that likes to solve problems by assigning blame. Um, I, I noticed it. Um, you know, I would say that assigning blame and finding who's at fault, uh, it's kind of like, and I was saying before, it's like the true American pastime, but I think it's the whole world. Like, we love to know who's responsible. Um, We may not be great at solving problems all the time as human beings. We may not be great at responding to disasters well or preparing for crisis, and we're certainly not good as humans at at routine maintenance, but when something goes wrong, we're really good at figuring out who's fault it was. And, and I noticed it a ton uh, over the last couple weeks um, as we, were, we prayed last Sunday for our friends down in Texas that were struggling with the loss of power and loss of heat. Um, and, and as big a disaster as that was, I don't know about you, but the things that I heard uh, on the news and from friends uh, were not as much, hey, let's pray for those people, but more uh, whose fault is it? Um, I thought it was kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's nice and easy to to uh, stand here because we're not the ones without power. But as you, as you watched the, that story, as we heard it unfold, everybody that was impacted by, uh, by that loss of power and that snowstorm, they all knew who was responsible, didn't they? Um, the uh, Democratic politicians from all over, they pointed their fingers at, at frozen natural gas wells and energy deregulation and climate change. That's who the Democrats blamed. The governor of Texas blamed frozen wind turbines. Um, uh, a, a certain, um, <clears throat> everyone else got blamed. One, one Texas mayor, he blamed his citizens for not like being tough enough to survive the cold. Um, and, and as we watched the story unfold, everybody watching got to find the person that they like uh, and find the person that they don't like, and then it didn't take long before we figured out whose fault it was, right? It was, it was awesome. Um, everyone watching got to decide, and that's just one, one picture, but, but you'll notice every time there's a disaster, every time there's a mistake, every time there's a tragedy, when humans come together, we try and figure out who's at fault. Um, Those of you who are teachers know um, that when a kid struggles in school, it's the parent's fault. And if you're a parent, you know that when a kid struggles in school, it's the teacher's fault, right? Um, When a marriage struggles, the husband knows that it's the wife's fault and vice versa. When churches can't resolve conflict, um, we may be able to admit that we're all stubborn, 
But someone else's stubbornness is usually the real problem, isn't it? It seems that no matter what happens, no matter what the scale, big or small, significant or insignificant, um, everyone involved has got to figure out who to blame. And there's always an element of truth to it, isn't there? Right? We're always a little bit right that it's that person's fault. What we leave out is the ways that we contributed to the problem. Well, leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, which Lamentations is written in response to, uh, there are lots of places to find fault. There are lots of people to blame. Uh, if you're interested, uh, check out 2 Kings 24 through 25. It tells the story of the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, And we're just going to run through, I'm just going to tell you sort of what happened really fast, and you'll notice that there are plenty of people whose feet we can lay the blame for this tragedy, this disaster, right? The city is wrecked, it's destroyed, everyone's miserable. If you read Lamentations, you can figure out exactly how bad it is. Uh, But but this is how we we got there. Uh, So God's people, they live in in a kingdom uh, and and at the time, if you read First and Second Kings, it's just a list of all the different kings that ruled in Israel and some of the things that they did well and, and most of the things that they did wrong. But leading up to the story, so you've got Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and ruling in Jerusalem is a king called Jehoiakim. Uh, he's in charge. He's the boss. Uh, and, and our Bible tells us that he did, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every king in kings gets a, either a good grade or a bad grade. He's a bad grade king, so, so he did evil. Uh, and as a result, um, kind of the next thing that happens in this story, the, another king, a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, he brought an army to Jerusalem. He's like, hey, I'm going to take over the city uh, and laid siege to the city. And and if, um, you know, a siege is just a brutal, uh, horrible way uh, of, of warfare in the ancient world. They surround the city and they choke off all your clean water and your resources and your food. And the people inside just suffer until they just can't handle it anymore and they, they give up. And so Jehoiakim does. He, he surrenders to the siege, okay? And the Babylonians come in. And they do what ancient empires always do. Uh, they make a deal. They say, okay, um, we're going to take all of your, your best people. We're going to take all your scribes, um, a bunch of the royal family, the smartest, the best, the best. We're going to take them to Babylon to teach them what it means to be Babylonian so that later on they can rule well on our behalf. Uh, and we're going to pick somebody else. And so they say to Jehoiakim, hey, we're going to make uh, your son king of Jerusalem. We'll leave behind the, the okay people. You can keep living in the city, uh, and, and we'll, take, we'll take you away. And so um, they do that. Babylon, they take the best people. They take some of the valuables, the articles in the temple, some of these golden tools that were used in, in worship, and they take that back to Babylon. And Zedekiah's king. But if you read uh, 2 Kings, you know that after not too long, Zedekiah decides that he doesn't like um, being under the thumb of Babylon. Uh, who would? So he rebels. He says, we're not going to pay you tribute anymore. We're not going to do what you ask anymore. And so Babylon comes back. They siege Jerusalem again. Uh, Zedekiah, he's not going to surrender um, like his dad did. So instead, he flees the city and tries to escape. Um, the Babylonians come in, and they decimate. They just decimate the city. You know, nothing, nothing is left. They burn the temple to the ground. They, they take these, these big bronze um, pillars that were part of the, the statue or uh, part of the temple, and they chop them up into pieces so they can bring them home to Babylon and melt them down. Now, you know, this is the center of your world if you're a Jerusalemite. You know, this is, you know, you, 
You know, our, our church, our church building is important to us, but it's not important to us in the same way that the temple is to them. This is the presence of God on earth. This is the only place you can meet God, and the enemies come, and they break down the doors, and they chop up all the valuables, and they pull them out of the temple and leave it uh, decimated. And behind they leave the poorest of the poor, um, the weak, anyone that can't do anything, and they burn the city and, and leave. And, and it, was a, it was a disaster. And so as we read, uh, as you heard that story from me, uh, right there are a few different people that we can maybe blame for what happened to Jerusalem. You know, if somebody was coming before Congress, um, they might say, well, you know, if the army had been more powerful, we could have defeated Babylon. Maybe it's the army's fault, right? Uh, maybe it's um, Jehoiakim's fault, right? He was the first one. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He surrendered to the Babylonians. Maybe he shouldn't have surrendered if he had just fought. Then maybe it's Jehoiakim's fault. Maybe uh, it's, it's Babylon's fault, right? We can agree, right? Babylon, they're bad. They burned the temple. They captured and killed many people. It was a disaster. Maybe it was um, Zedekiah's fault. If he had just gotten along with Babylon, it'd be okay, right? We've got a list of people to blame. We've got a list of people who are responsible for what happens. And, and there comes this moment after a tragedy where, where it's time to like look at the mass and see the wreckage. And, and this moment is presented to them as they sit in the ashes of their city. They get a moment to choose what they're going to do. And so this is how, how uh, Lamentations captures it for us. It, Lamentations is a choice made by a people how they're going to respond to a tragedy. And, and one of their responses is they write Lamentations. And so I'm just going to read part of Lamentations 2, and it's going to give us a hint of who, uh, who they think is to blame. Um, and I'm just going to read 1 through 8. It says, How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool. In the day of his anger, without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he's torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He's brought her kingdom and its princes to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he's cut off every horn of Israel. He's withdrawn his right hand as the approach of the enemy, at the approach of the enemy. He has burned Jacob in a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. And he's poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He's swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. He's laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He's destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He's given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy. They've raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the appointed day of a festival, the Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament. Together, they were wasted away. 
So the question uh, that I've wrestled with this week, according to Lamentations 2, right, the authors, the people responding to this, and remember, uh, those that read this scripture every year in prayer and remember, um, remember the tragedy and the disaster, who, who do they blame for what happened? Whose fault, whose fault is it? They blame God. And, and it's kind of a, a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around, but, but if you read that again, verses 1 through 8, the only person that acts in verse 1 through 8 isn't the Babylonians and their swords. It's not the king. Uh, it's not uh, the Israel's army. It's not Zedekiah or Jedekiah. It's the Lord. The Lord strings his bow. The Lord has cut off. The Lord has swallowed up. According to Lamentations 2... It's, it's actually God who did this to them in this moment. And, and this um, it should bother you. It bothers me. Uh, it should bother us. Um, but let's, let's continue on. Uh, we're going to jump down to verse uh, 14 uh, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to elaborate a little bit about what's, what's going on here. It says, um, this, is, um, this is the narrator talking about, talking to Jerusalem now. Uh, the narrator says, The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The prophecies they gave you were false and misleading. All who passed your way clapped their hands at you. They scoff and shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was once called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? 16, All your enemies open up their mouths wide against you. They scoff and gnash their teeth and say, We've swallowed her up. This is the day we've waited for. We've lived to see it. In verse 17, The Lord has done what he planned. He's fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He's let the enemy gloat over you. He's exalted the horn of your foes. All this horn language, it was just a way of talking about strength in the ancient, in the ancient world. So, so according to Lamentations 2, um, God is to blame for their, their problems, um, but, but it clarifies a little bit there in verse 17, doesn't it? God is keeping his promise. And so um, when they talk about God's promise, um, they talk about this moment when God's people stood on the edge of the kingdom they would inhabit. And their leader, Moses, said, you're going to have a choice in the land. You can either uh, stay close to who God is and care uh, for the people that he's put in your midst, follow the law, worship God alone, and care for the poor and weak among you, or you can not. And Moses says, he says, and if you do what you're supposed to do, God's going to bless and care for your city, and if not, he's going to turn his back on you. And so... As we're, as we're seeing uh, God's people here, they write these words. They were here in this moment. This is what they believe. Uh, they believe that God is only keeping his promise. And so when they're saying this, when they're writing these words, they're accepting blame. They're accepting blame for turning away in how they broke the covenant with, with God by worshiping other gods by abusing and disregarding the poor and vulnerable in their midst and by not following the law. You see, there comes a moment after a tragedy where it's time to look at the mess, 
to be honest about the lost dreams, the ruined plans, and the wreckage, to see the way this tragedy, whatever it is, uh, has, has messed up our family, our community, and our world, to see uh, the way this tragedy has divided us against each other, the ways that we failed each other in it, the ways that we contributed to the problems that followed, and to look for an escape hatch. And as they sit in the ashes, they have a choice. They're either going to assign blame to a scapegoat to absolve themselves, or they're going to take responsibility. Lamentations uh, is is taking responsibility. It offers uh, a way that is brought to fulfillment in Christ. In the ashes of Jerusalem, this is what God's people say, and it's surprising because we don't want to say it. We don't like to say it. Uh, But in the ashes of Jerusalem, God's people, they look at each other, and they accept blame. They look at each other, and they say, this disaster happened But it wasn't the Babylonians that did this to us. It wasn't a king's bad decision that did this to us. It wasn't a failure of the military or even a failure of strategy or of strength. It was the Lord doing what he had planned, fulfilling his word promise that he would bring justice for my failures. In the ashes of Jerusalem, God's people say, it was me. I am responsible. I failed. And for the lamenter, the author, the people in the streets, the people reading these words generations and generations later, we read them honestly in reference to our own sin, our own failure. Because uh, as they write this, uh, it might not seem like it, but there's actually a shred of hope in these words for the people of Jerusalem as they sit in the ashes of their city. There's a shred of hope planted in these words because if it's not that the Babylonians were so strong we couldn't have stopped them and if it's not that the king was a fool that messed, up, messed it up for everyone, if it's not someone else's problem, problem, if it's God's judgment for our failure, then maybe, just maybe, God can forgive, restore, and re build. The same God whose faithful justice consumed Jerusalem can rebuild it, remake it, and rewrite the story. That same God can forgive our failures, heal our wounds, and deal with the consequences of our actions. And this is not an easy place to be. It's not a nice feeling to feel. Most people aren't willing to look at the problems in their own lives and see the ways that they're responsible for them. But in Lamentations, they did. And because they did, they were able to have hope. They were able to have hope that one day they would come back. And guess what? God didn't forget them forever. Uh, No, uh, one day God would send his own son, the person of Jesus Christ, and he would walk the earth. Uh, Jesus would walk the earth in its own disasters, in its own failures, in its own tragedies and lamentable days. And when faced um, with his own Jerusalem that would soon fall, Jesus did what the people in Lamentations did. He accepted blame. Even though he was the one person that had done nothing wrong, even though he was the one person who couldn't uh, justify his own blame, even though he was the one person on earth who hadn't failed, Jesus took the blame anyway, for their failure, and for my failure, and for your failures. 
Jesus stood uh, and was carried to the cross, and as he was carried to the cross, as he walked to the cross, he carried our sin, our failure, and our blame. He stood in for Jerusalem and the ways that it had let down the people in its midst. He stood for you and for me in the ways that we've failed others and harmed others. He stands for our, uh, our world now in the ways that it neglects and turns its back on people who need help. And he bore the consequence on his shoulders. He took the blame for our sake. And the same God that restored Jerusalem brought him back from the grave new. The reality is, that when we face uh, huge problems in our lives, when we face disasters in our relationships and in our worlds, oftentimes it's, it's not easy to figure out whose fault it is. Oftentimes it's, it's really no one's fault, right? When marriages go wrong, when businesses fall apart, when families pull away from each other, when communities become divided, when unexpected disasters happen, oftentimes it's hard to figure out whose fault it is totally. But it doesn't take long until we start contributing to the problem. It doesn't take long till we, in response to the disaster, in response to the conflict, in response to the brokenness, add more and more and more brokenness on it. It doesn't take long until we can assign blame because often uh, it's easy to find someone because we are all somewhat to blame. Often it is your wife's fault or your kid's fault or your governor's fault or your business partner's fault in some real way. It really is. You're not wrong. The people in our lives do let us down. They do fail us. But it's very easy for us to shade our responsibility and failures in those moments or the failures of systems that we've created, sustained, and benefited from to shade those failures onto someone else. But in truth, when a disaster strikes, before long, if we're honest, all of us have done something now that we ought to shoulder some blame for. All of us bear some responsibility. God is sovereign. God is at work. Uh, But our choices have consequences. They matter, and we make them badly. And it's always going to seem easier to shift the blame onto a scapegoat and move on. But the only way that our families are relationships, our church, our nations will ever find healing as if as Christians we follow the example of Christ. We admit fault. We confess our failure and we refuse to pass the blame onto someone else. We say, I am the guilty party. And we throw ourselves on God's mercy, placing our faith in a Savior who did the same thing. And then, uh, just like the people sitting in the ashes of Jerusalem, then if we admit and take responsibility, then we will find we have freedom from our sin, from our failures. Denying our responsibility, uh, our failure and sin, it, it leads to slavery. It takes more and more energy to, to turn away from it. There are fewer and fewer people to blame And it becomes more clear to everyone around us that the five bosses that were were jerks or the five wives or the five churches later, maybe it wasn't really their problem, it was mine. Freedom never comes in denial, only in confession. 
We may not be spared the consequences of our actions, but because of Christ, we can be forgiven them. And then, and only then, as we admit and own up to our own individual and collective failures, we'll have the hope that God can bring life into our dead selves. Life into our dead institutions, dreams, and groups we belong to. Then we have use for a God who raises the dead. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we have all fallen short. We have all failed in our response, in our care for others, in our faithfulness. And so, Lord, as people who are guilty and have failed, we throw ourselves on your mercy. And we put our hope in the one that took all of our failure, all of our guilt, and all of our sin to the cross on our behalf. We give that blame over to him and we accept his sacrifice. And because he walked out of the tomb, we don't have to be bound by our sins and failures anymore. Instead, we can admit them, come clean, and be made new. And so we thank you, God, for that. In your name, amen. I'd like to invite our worship team to come forward. We can lay our burdens on the one who carried them to the cross for our sake. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together. Thanks for joining us. You can find out more about our church, our live stream, and our in-person services at BethelCove.org. Thanks and have a great week.